0: All right, you guys, for September 18th, 2019, I'm Scott Horton, and this is another Q&A show. I'm joined on the line here by Phil Gibson. Welcome to the show. How are you doing? Or, yeah.
1: <laughs> I'm awesome, man. How you doing? I'm okay. Now you interview me. Well, all righty, man. Bolton's out of the picture. So who's stepping in? You think it's going to be McGregor? Who appears on Trump's favorite show on Fox, the T- Tucker Carlson show?
0: Oh, no, they already or, named the new guy today. It's Robert O'Brien. Oh, yeah. And that's he's right. a hawk.
1: I did see that. Well, damn it.
0: <laughs> yeah, McGregor Our, never had a chance, man. He's too good on stuff.
1: All right. Well, where do you think that's going to go? I mean, I read that report that Jason Diss put out that Trump's having second thoughts, but if you put a hawk in to replace him, You think he's going to be harder on Iran after the Saudi attack or what?
0: Well, I mean, the thing is, the guy that he brought in, I don't know a lot about him, but he's not a big power player. He was the chief negotiator uh, at the State Department. Um, He had worked for George W. Bush on Palestine issues on the U.N., which is probably pretty bad. And had written a book. I love this called The Sleeping Giant. All about how America, I'm not sure at which point or in which dimension, had embraced isolationism and had turned away from the world, thus causing all of our problems. And so needed to double down and expand some wars. And so I I guess he's not a neocon, but he sounds like he's a pretty conventional hawk. But I guess, you know, what really matters is his personality and how he fits in the scheme of things inside the White House and the way things are argued, I mean if Pompeo picked him, he worked for Pompeo over in the State Department, if Pompeo picked him and you know gave you know recommended him to Trump, then I think that raises the possibility the very likely possibility that Pompeo picked him because he's weak and because essentially he'll be you know kind of a yes man whatever you guys think is the right thing to do kind of a guy. The same as the last couple secretaries of defense or, you know, the acting and then the now current secretary of defense, you know, I'm sure in their neighborhood, they're the boss or whatever. But when it comes to the kind of egos that run foreign policy in the United States, they're not very well placed to have things their own way for good or for ill. They're pretty much there. It reminds me a lot of Nuri al-Maliki in Iraq, sort of just refusing to name a defense minister, refusing to name a finance minister. That way he gets all the offices for himself, essentially. Um, It's not quite like that, but it's sort of in effect. By having a real weak secretary of defense and a real weak national security advisor, it enhances the power of Pompeo and Trump himself versus them. Again, for good or ill.
1: So if that's the case, why didn't Pompeo just take over?
0: Well, you know what? Um, people are comparing him to Henry Kissinger, who at one time was Secretary of State and National Security Advisor at the same time. Uh, he certainly, according to all reports, so anyway, gets is. along with Trump just great. They've never had a fight. He knows just right when to say yes, sir, and when to push his point of view So, you know, he's he's, a right-wing hawk and ideologue, but, you know, people uh, consider him like a born-again from Kansas, but he's not really from Kansas. I mean, that's a certain thing. There's a certain kind of born-again. I'm not exactly sure what sect of Protestant it is, but there's some real hardcore revivalist-type born-agains in Kansas, and he's kind of born-again adjacent. He may go to their church, but I think he's, you know, he's not born and raised in that level of religiosity where you really need to worry about. Is he really putting his religious beliefs in place of, you know, even, you know, whatever color glasses to see the world through? I, I think he's not that crazy. You know, he just runs around with those guys.
1: Yeah, he's just crazy enough to think that God put Trump in power to save Israel or whatever.
0: Oh, yeah. I mean, he's bad on everything, but so are all Republicans. You know, it's not like um, people talk about him as though. He's so religious that that makes him an altogether different creature, which I think is not right.
1: So, do you think the cutting of rates might be uh, signaling that they're going to start upping the ante on military spending for the Saudis?
0: Oh, I don't know. I mean, Donald Trump has been, you know, really politicizing the Federal Reserve as much as he can. And, you know, he even put out a tweet. He said, who's the worst enemy of America? Chairman Z or... Chairman Powell, um, which is pretty unprecedented for a president to attack the Federal Reserve like that, this is one of the arguments for the Fed, I'm not making it, I'm just saying that yeah. politicians will demand inflate, 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 and never allow a recession to hit, and that that's supposedly why... They're appointed to these fourteen-year terms and have such supposed independence from the government that they will take away the punch bowl right when the party is getting too good, which is never what they really do, right? This is the argument: is that by being insulated from politics, they'll do the hard thing. But Trump is looking at it like, oh no, deflation. That people are starting to call in bad loans and. Uh, You know, uh, especially capital goods orders and these kind of higher order goods orders are starting to decrease. And Trump says, inflate, inflate, inflate. Don't you let this thing crash on me now. And the problem is, of course, like at some point they're pushing on a string and they can, you know, only loan out so much money if people aren't taking the loans. But I actually just read a thing that said last month housing starts are at an all time high because of the newly lowered interest rates and people are refinancing even more and whatever. So in other words, they're doing the best they can to kick the can down the road till at least after the election. And, you know, it's funny because it seems to be the policy that the fed is pursuing. But as Ron Paul pointed out, um, the president of the New York fed, I guess a former president of the New York fed wrote an article saying that the Federal Reserve should jack up interest rates and should force a recession in order to hurt Donald Trump and make sure to rig the election so that he loses in 2020. Which, you know, really goes right to this whole question of the Federal Reserve's supposed independence from politics. On one hand, you have the president browbeating them and saying, you better keep inflating so I can get reelected. And on the other side of that, you have, no, we should deflate so that he can't get reelected. You don't really have anyone saying, well, you know, our job isn't really to do stuff like intervene in elections on anyone's behalf. Instead, those are your choices. Should the Federal Reserve's current policy favor or disfavor the current sitting president? Depending on whether you support him or not. Might as well get rid of it. If it's that politicized, what's the argument for its independence?
1: Yeah, I can't argue with you on that. It's just kind of, you know, why, why is it there in the first place if it's not actually going to do what it's supposed to do? And, and look, uh, we
0: got a major crash coming. I don't know exactly how bad it is, but I know they created trillions of dollars of new money to fill in the gap from trillions of dollars of destroyed wealth. A lot of that, which was, you know bubble activity on paper in the first place, but not all of it. And I don't know, but it sure seems like 2007 to me right now when you had Bear Stearns coming down and the problems were starting to, you know, poke their head up and then they're doing their best they could to paper over it and the ratings companies were refusing to acknowledge it and everybody's just, you know, Squeezing their eyes shut and sticking their fingers in their ears and pretending that everything that everything is going to be fine when, you know, they're just a year, year and a half away from a major catastrophe. And I think the only question really is, does it happen on Trump's watch, you know, or during his first term or after the election? which I presume will be in his second term if you look at who the Democrats are.
1: How are we going to fix our underfunded trillion-dollar military?
0: Yeah, well, don't worry, Trump. He's on top of that.
1: Yeah, that Mick Macon interview was just great. Yeah, I, I'm just kind of lost for words on that because just after seeing that the rates are being lowered, I just kind of thought, you know, what does this crash look like? And of all the bubbles that are out there, I mean, I mean, do, do they intentionally just kind of pop one slowly as a can after the other, or is it best that it all just happens at once? Or- yeah,
0: you know, in '99 the dot com bubble crashed, but the housing bubble kept on going. They just kept inflating and inflating, and the housing bubble stayed. And so we really, you know, in '08 the stock market crashed and everything else along with it. You know, the whole dang economy. Same kind of thing happened in 87, or it was 88, the crash of 88, where, um, you know, it was a pretty big stock market crash, but then they just kept right on going again. Next crash didn't happen until a real recession hit after Iraq War one. So, yeah, we could see that, you know, where, okay, the NASDAQ gets hit or, you know, some sectors get hit, but then they just stomp on the gas and keep inflating some more and pushing everything down the road. The problem is, unfortunately, when they finally give up and they try to go ahead and let the air out of the bubble, so to speak, because they're afraid of how bad it's getting out of control, whether in terms of widespread price inflation or in terms of severe bubbles that even they can't deny, the problem is... Once they start deflating, there's no way to turn it off, and the crash always comes. This is what Murray Rothbard talks about in For a New Liberty in the the money section, and the money chapter there. And I think he says the same thing in What Has Government Done to Our Money? They always try to just barely prick the bubble and let the air out slowly, but it always leads to a crash. And then, of course, they inflate even more again. As they say, in order to create a soft landing so that everything doesn't crash all the way down, we can stop the crash at about halfway down with a cushion of new money. But then, of course, that just helps to start the setup for the next crash. And on and on it goes. They call it the business cycle. It should be called the government's war against the economy cycle. The government's war for some favored interests at the expense of everybody else cycle.
1: Yeah. It's really refreshing to really kind of fully understand how foreign policy really does come back home because we're the ones providing all that chaos overseas to actually happen. And I mean, the fed is just like the main tool that's allowing that to happen.
0: Right, Cause I can't raise your taxes. Not that much to pay for a whole new war or three or four. No way. So instead they just inflate and you pay the price later, but you don't realize that your time in the unemployment line is your cost of the genocide, your share of the price of killing all those people,
1: which makes me think we're that much closer to a potential war. I mean, you would, would hope and think more, more so hope that people would pick up this pattern on blaming Houthis for this and that. And then at the end end of the day, you just had to blame Iran and, You know, coming out with, I don't know how bogus the reports are of the satellite, uh, you know, picking up the the smoke from space and stuff and uh, who actually did it. It it just I don't know. It it almost seems inevitable. But
0: yeah, well, you know, this is my fear is that the Americans are going to jump into the war in Yemen. They're not going to hit Iran. I think the military, I have to believe I don't know, <laughs> as a matter of faith, so I give up all hope, that the Army and the Marines are telling Donald Trump, we don't want to do Iran, you don't want to do Iran, Mr. President. We're just... comes down to it, we'll do it, but yeah, we really don't want to do that. It's just biting off too much. You know, so many of their policies in the Middle East are about trying to figure out a way to spite Iran because they can't actually attack them. They just have too much of an ability to fight back. Yes, America would win the war, even on their soil, eventually. But it would take a massive war, even if it was just an air war. Uh, Even if America didn't actually invade with infantry and try to, you know, occupy the country or some kind of crazy mission like that, which could be done on like a World War II level type invasion of Normandy sort of a deal. Um, But even short of that, a massive air campaign against Iran Which would ultimately be successful at decimating their military, their navy, their army, their air force, and their, you know, their Kuds force and command and control bases and whatever. Well, not the force itself, but wherever they're based from and their assets and this kind of thing. It would still come at enormous cost because there's just no way to take out all of Iran's retaliatory capability in a quick enough period of time. And meanwhile, you have American men and material. And assets all through the region in Afghanistan and Iraq and Kuwait and all up and down the Western side of the Persian Gulf, there, and including all of our assets or all of our allies' financial assets, oil and downtown Abu Dhabi and whatever you got. And so it's just there's no way to do it that doesn't lead to an absolute catastrophe. And Donald Trump doesn't want that. He saw, as Colonel McGregor says, Colonel McGregor, who we wish got the job, says that Donald Trump is smart enough to know that Vietnam destroyed Lyndon Johnson, Iraq destroyed George W. Bush, and that Iran would destroy him. That we don't want a war with Iran, and that I'm speaking for the American people. We don't want a war with Iran, and he knows that. And it would be, and everyone would know it was his fault. He scrapped a perfectly good deal and picked this fight. And so, you know, it would be, he thought he was going to get a better deal. And he very much looks like he is not going to get a better deal. But he wasn't just trying to get us into a war. You know, that would have been John Bolton's MO. They're like, yes, of course, we need to look as though we tried everything before we attack. (laughs) You know, um... And, you know, and I think probably Bolton and others promised Trump, too, that, you know what, if we can't get them to, um, you know, go ahead and give in and give us a better deal, then don't worry, because our economic warfare against them could just destroy their regime and force them out of power anyway, which I think is a complete ridiculous daydream is never going to happen but yeah, know. I think there is kind of a narrative catch- like that. I think Pompeo believes that. He certainly repeated that mantra a few times that don't worry, the regime problem there is going to take care of itself for us. Because why? Because that's what the MEK said or some, you know, I don't know who told him that, but that's not true. Yeah,
1: e- economic warfare is really just going to hurt uh y- you know, you have sanctions and then the secondary sanctions are really just going to hurt uh partners that the US trades with too. So it's like a lose-lose situation there.
0: Right, and of course, all actual legitimate businessmen in the country are suffering while the Quds Force and their allies who run all the black markets, who are, you know, the forces that are tied not just to the regime, but to the worst aspects of the regime, the Revolutionary Guard Corps and so forth, they're the ones who make out like bandits. It's not that that oil's not getting sold, it's that it's not getting sold by legitimate companies, Instead, it's getting sold by special operations forces, (laughs) you know, who are making the money for for themselves and building up their own little fiefdoms and, you know, helping to spread that kind of political economic corruption throughout the country. So it benefits the hawks. And this has always been the case, that on both sides, in Iran and in the United States of America, the enemy is... The moderates who would dare to negotiate, you know, and we have the hawks constantly playing off of each other and benefiting from each other's rhetoric and from each other's actions. And every time the moderates say, yeah, but listen, can't we just shake hands and work this out? They get upset. And that goes for Trump, too. When Trump says, hey, I think I would like to have some talks with President Rouhani. You get some drone strikes on a Saudi base. Now, I got to tell you, I really think that that was the Houthis. I don't believe for a minute that it was the Iranians. As they're saying now, oh, they fired a bunch of missiles from southeastern or, pardon me, southwestern Iran. But America didn't notice this. No one noticed this until after the fact. Oh, and then, by the way, it took them a day and a half to make that up. But anyway, (laughs) or two days. But anyway, yeah, no, that's what happened. All right. And then it's already coming out that from the satellite views, they were saying, well, these, the, uh, the missile impacts seem to not be from the south as though the Houthis had done it, but instead from the east as though, or the north as though they'd come from Iran. But then the pictures come out and they don't show that at all. The pictures show, out, uh, show that the damage is on the western side. And so that's certainly the opposite side of where Iran is. And it's consistent with the Houthis who are in the southwest compared to, uh, you know, the targets in Saudi Arabia, in eastern Saudi Arabia there. And so, you know, they just make up whatever they want. They just say whatever they want. You know, I was on Dave Smith's show earlier and he was talking about how uh, he did the Kennedy show last night. And they were joking about the CNN coverage where they had their bullet points. And they say, what we know, Iran did it. And then they go on with the thing. it's like, yeah, no, we don't know that, do we? (laughs) All we have is, that's what the U.S. government claims. That's all. And that's worth nothing. In fact, if anything, it indicates that some opposite is true and that we should wait to find out. And in fact, look who has motive. Everybody who would want to prevent now a post-Bolton Trump administration from trying to figure out a way to negotiate with Iran. Now, the Houthis, they have their own motives, self-defense. But there are plenty of others in the region who would have had reason to do that as well. And so and in fact, just nobody knows. Who could fly a fleet of drones into an oil refinery and drop some explosive charges? Anyone. And that's a whole other topic. This is the future of your land and mine and the whole world from now on. Drones, untraceable drones flying around killing people. You're going to see armed robberies like this. You're going to see political assassinations like this. From now on, you don't need a Reaper drone. And get your local drone down at Frys, and a couple of adapter kits later, and you're good to go to war. And so, yeah, it's a brave new world out there, man. I don't know if Isaac Asimov, whatever. I know he predicted some drones and stuff, but did he predict that where the average jackass can turn a drone into a lethal weapon and go around, you know? Killing innocent people on the sidewalk at night and then later running up and stealing their corpse's wallet and stuff like that. I mean, that's going to be just the start of this. I'm off on a tangent, but you can see how. And you're talking about very little investment. I mean, even for muggers, it would make sense for muggers to invest in quality drones that you can hook a gun to. (laughs) You know, I don't know. I'm not trying to give people bad (laughs) ideas. I'm just saying.
1: Yeah. No, I was going to say, I I saw on antiwar.com, like, how easy it is to make these drones. And considering that Saudi Arabia is number three in, like, the buyer of our military equipment, you know, maybe they're not as sophisticated as we think they are. And these aren't the people we should be selling our toys to if they can't defend themselves from some, like, ghetto-rigged drone bomb made by the Houthis.
0: Yeah, but how are they supposed to? I mean, seriously, these things can fly extremely low. I mean, they're the size of a hand. They can be, right? They could be tiny little things, even if they're the size of, you know, a man's head or something. That's a pretty damn small little remote control airplane. You're supposed to track that with what length wave radar, you know? I don't know, but (laughs) I think it's it's a Maginot line kind of a thing, you know? It's the last war. That says, you know, our Patriot missile, Aegis radar, or whatever is good enough. Apparently not. I did like when you're talking
1: with the, uh, let me see here. Oh, on with the uh, Robert Naiman. He was the first one I've really heard articulate how it's not really a Petrodollar thing. It's the military industrial complex, how we're selling them this equipment. So I just. Well, them, it's, thought it, them, it is the know, Petrodollar, just, but, just, but it's saying
0: it's not just recycling those dollars in buying U.S. government securities, it's also in buying American weapons to the tune of tens and hundreds of billions of dollars. Absolutely, it's just like that movie Network. Have you ever seen that movie Network? It, it was uh, funny. Um, you know, there was yeah, a, so. there was a big thing like this in uh, the George W. Bush years about a Saudi company taking over a couple of American ports, and. You know, because people are saying, "Man, that's a pretty big security risk there for Al Qaeda guys getting in and that kind of thing." But in that movie, Network, what happens is the protagonist goes on TV and he's kind of a big, you know, evangelist type. I mean, not religious, but like a political evangelist type TV show, beseeching everyone all the time and all this. And I forgot exactly what it was, but the Arabs were going to make some giant purchase of, say, an American airline or whatever it was, and then. So the TV host rallies the people against it and says, we got to stop this. We can't have this is not the way it's supposed to be. This is our country and all this stuff. And then the boss, who's played by Ned Beatty, who's the boss of the corporation that owns the media company that he works for, calls him upstairs for the big meeting where he explains to them that we put our money in Arabia. Now they have to put it back. That's how it works. And you don't know what you're doing and you're messing with our system and the ebbs and flows here. So let me tell you something, pal, you're going to work for me now and you're going to get out there and you're going to tell them that this, we want the Saudis to buy whatever property it was, whatever it was in there. And that's exactly the way it's going to go. And you got to see the movie. It's great movie. Faye Dunaway and, uh, Uh, I forget, I forgot who played, uh, who played, uh, the protagonist, but you know, it's funny. I'll tell you what, when you watch that movie and Ned Beatty gives him the big speech about how the corporations rule the world and there are no more nations anymore and all of this stuff that that was Greg Palast that wrote that. And that originally that came from a book that Greg Palast wrote when he was like 21. And then his father knew the guy that wrote that movie. And so his that guy had become familiar with Pallas' book and took a couple of pages of his book and turned it into that Ned Beatty rant about, let me explain to you how the world really works here, son, which is really great, you know. Anyways, hey, were there questions in the uh, Reddit room for us here? I could have said at the I... beginning, this is where I take questions from the Reddit room, the donors, everybody who supports the show with $5 or more a month uh, by way of PayPal or Patreon or what have you gets keys to the Reddit room where they can do things like ask me questions that I might answer on the show. I think there was one that I saw, but I can't remember what it was. Maybe it was a Latin America question. Oh, I know what it was. It was about why do these other governments back Guaido since he's such a freaking joke? We know why John Bolton and Donald Trump backed him, but how'd they get all of Europe to go along with that and everything? I really don't know. I mean, maybe the Americans were promising them, a better future in dealing with Venezuela over their oil. I mean, you got to admit the commies have run that country into the ground. So American sanctions haven't helped, but American sanctions don't get all the blame either. And so, you know, it's the resource curse, man, but it's to the nth degree, right? It's like, they're the argument ad absurdum where they get so fat and lazy and stupid, pumping free money out of the ground that they lose their priority of even maintaining the equipment that it takes to pump the free money out of the ground. You know, they ruin everything. And so that's my best guess, but I don't have a real answer for why the Europeans would immediately recognize Juan Guaido and all that. I mean, his claim and the opposition's claim that the Constitution allowed... For him to declare himself president is just a ridiculous joke. On par with if Nancy Pelosi said that the 25th Amendment says she can be president. Uh, That's not what the 25th Amendment says, that you can do a coup d'etat and the Speaker of the House of Representatives can announce themselves the president. And the analogy is almost perfect. I mean, in Venezuela, they said, well, we dispute that the last election was fair. And so we're saying he was unfairly elected. So therefore, then, we're saying that there is no one who is legitimately holding the office of the president right now. So therefore, we're saying that the office of the presidency is open right now. And so therefore, you see how now we can say that the Speaker of our House Can declare. Yeah. So, you know, I heard from CIA on CNN that Trump only won the election because of the Russians, the Russians. And so his election was illegitimate. So therefore, in fact, the the real presidency is open. He's only illegitimately a pretender to that office. And so therefore, well, geez, if the vice president Pence isn't stepping into the job, well, everybody knows that next in line is Nancy Pelosi. So I guess according to the 25th Amendment, since she's next and according to the 25th Amendment, you can just do a coup if you want. Then it's the same level of legitimacy and it's completely ridiculous. Although, you know what? I don't know if Nancy Pelosi tried it. Maybe the Europeans would go along with that, too. (laughs) You know? They'd be pretty happy to get rid of Trump. But, uh, no, I mean, that guy... And then, of course, it turned out that he's just a crook. You know, Dan McAdams, when this whole thing started... In January, where they originally tried this ridiculous failed coup in Venezuela, Dan McAdams is sitting there like with his arms crossed, all dissatisfied, going, oh, yeah, well, who's this Guaido guy and all of his buddies? And they're all corrupt and they're all a bunch of criminals. And why would we believe that the NED and the USA is going to come in there and pick the right guys and announce? And this is crazy. And then, of course, it turns out that that was exactly right, that not only were these guys, you know, completely illegitimate in their pretensions to authority. But they're just criminals. They just stole a bunch of money. Guaido and all the people around him stole whatever number of millions of dollars from the Exxon or the Sitco fund. You know, they had, the, you know, these uh, these corporate uh, it was oh it was um, Exxon. It was a former board member of Exxon was one of the guys that was helping run the entire Guaido thing. And then him and his buddies got busted for running off with millions of dollars. And that included, you know, money that was put up by their supporters, uh, you know, who believed in them as well. And these guys just took all the money and probably spent it on coke and whores and Angus steaks and whatever. And they're good. (laughs) And so I remember it was funny because I remember seeing Dan McAdams essentially in the exact same chair, in the exact same position there on the Ron Paul show. Uh, Just a few months later, what, three, four months later, going, yep, see, they're nothing but crooks, these guys. Juan Guaido, not only is he a loser and a traitor, he's a common thief. He's a scum of the earth. And so this might be a good time for some libertarians who got caught up in that, Well, look, everybody, did you hear? A left-wing enemy. Finally, someone I can take the side of the U.S. government against. Yeah, in favor of a bunch of scumbags. Big surprise there. And, you know, Pompeo admitted apparently on a secretly recorded admission that he didn't know he was on a hot mic saying that, you know, the truth is if we got rid of Maduro tomorrow, we'd have 20 Guaidos all claiming that they should be the president and they have the legitimate claim to the title. So, in other words, that's who the opposition is. A bunch of guys who couldn't work together to save even their own faction, much less the country. And just a bunch of scumbags who want all the power for themselves. That's all. And in fact, think about it. All you'd have to do to be a Venezuelan hero is say, look, man, I'm running on Maduro's exact platform of free stuff for everybody all the time. I'm just saying we got to print less money. (laughs) Right? Like you could do that and win. We're printing too much money. it's too disruptive to the economy. No one is able to save. And so we have to stop with the hyperinflation. But don't worry, you still get your free stuff. That would be essentially enough for any serious candidate to win there, and to be you know taken seriously by the people of that country. But there's nobody like that. Yeah? You know? And it's too bad for them. But, you know, and this was obvious at the time, too, by the way. You know, I don't know. It it sure wasn't on TV, but it was on Twitter and it was around the Internet where they would show these protests with, you know, a couple of thousand people, maybe two or three thousand max. Most of them were just in the hundreds. But then there was drone footage from above the march in front of the presidential palace or whatever they call it there. I think it's the presidential palace where there were hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of thousands of people, like probably more than half a million, probably far more than half a million, just stretching for miles and miles and miles and miles. So there's your revolution. They're out there protesting in defense of the president in his palace, out front protecting him from the attempt by this small minority of rich right-wingers to launch their coup. And so you can say that makes them damn fools, but they got popular sovereignty or not. Well, that's pretty foolish, too. But anyway, uh, certainly this small minority faction has no claim on legitimate authority whatsoever in the face of that.
1: And when you said that that there were 20 people lined up behind them, is that because they're all CIA plants through like some AstroTurf program or... How does that all work out?
0: No, I mean, there is a right wing among the rich and, you know, more Spanish than Indian types down there. Um, The country has been ruled by the right in the past, um, including right up until the time when Chavez took power. There have been leftists in power previous to him. But, uh, you know, they essentially... And this is the problem, you know, throughout Latin America is essentially there's never been anything like a regime of libertarianism at all. I mean, in America, you sort of have it by default because the U.S. is so big. I mean, never mind the Indians and black people and stuff. I know that it wasn't all fair, but I'm just saying for the vast majority of the population, people really could own their own land and not have it stolen out from under them and build it up to a higher value and buy it and sell it and trade it and not have local warlords take all their profits and this kind of deal. Um, You could say it was a de facto thing. It was somewhat the, you know, with purpose. Anyway, down there, you just essentially, you always have right wing fascists versus left wing Marxist guerrillas. And then if the Marxist guerrillas actually end up taking power, then they create some ridiculous, you know, crappy pseudo kami regime like we've seen in Nicaragua and in Cuba and in Uh, Well, ain't nothing pseudo about the communism in Cuba, um, in Venezuela. And they just do a horrible job. Um, But then the only other choice is essentially the rich, you know, the very small, wealthy minority. And they don't believe in free markets. They don't come to power saying, listen... You poor Indians, we're going to teach you how to be free. This, we're going to have sound money and you're going to save up some capital and invest and soon we'll all be rich. No. Instead, they only care about themselves. They have, for example, you know, the oil in Venezuela was nationalized way back in, I think, the early 1970s or mid-1970s. Well, when the right wingers were in power, they just kept all that money for themselves. You know, when Hugo Chavez came in, he brought the standard of living up for the poor of that country by huge, you know, double digit percentage points. Hospitals and schools and housing and paved roads and electricity and, you know, bringing civilization to the ghetto where they didn't have it. And all that money before was just being hoarded by those who had the political power. Right. They didn't make the oil. They just had the political control over it and the ability to sell it. And then, you know, they were essentially fascists. I guess you wouldn't say they're like Nazis because it wasn't with that level of ideology behind it, but you don't call it free market capitalism because there ain't nothing free or market about it. It's, you know, pure cronyism. And, um, you know, there's a, a book by Antonio Vargas Losa called Liberty for Latin America, and that's his lament, that all we get to choose between is the reds and the browns and nobody believes in property browns meaning brown shirt fascists not brown skin the reds mm-hmm. communists and the brown shirt you know fascists and for economic views and there there's never really been liberty and real property rights and so and of course it's that kind of thing is conflated with the right unfortunately when it's really the antithesis but anyway so that doesn't answer the question. Why did Europe go along with recognizing this guy, Guaido? I don't know. Someone must have promised them some money. I they must it have thought they were going to get something for free.
1: Yeah, I think it's pressure, like how secondary sanctions work. So the U.S. was just telling Europe to uh, go along, to get along and this and that, but
0: I I don't know. Well, that's the other thing, too, right? If you're the French and the Germans and whoever, are you going to you know, argue with Trump about everything or— This one's in Latin America. The Americans want to do it this way. Go ahead and give it to them on this one because we're sick of fighting about every little thing and we got other things like Iran and whatever to deal with, you know?
1: Yeah. I want to take a turn on here because um, I want to uh, know a bit more about the the CIA, just in general. And you had that uh, nice woman talking about the, uh, uh, you know, CIA experiments on Americans and this and that. So... Uh, I want to know what you know about the CIA in general. Why it's here? Uh, it's not supposed to be here. I don't think even the FBI is really necessary, as Jacob Hornberger wants to just get rid of the entire thing altogether. So, uh, yeah, just just talk about uh the CIA, its foundation, and uh why you know it's it's awful.
0: Well, like so much of things wrong in the world, it's Harry Truman's fault. Um, you know, during World War II. There was under, I think, under the Department of the Army, or maybe it was separate, its own department. I don't know. I think, yeah, it was under the Department of the Army. It was called the Office of Strategic Services, the OSS. And they were the intelligence guys, you know, behind the scenes, behind the lines. Um, And then after the war, it took a year and a half or two or so to really get the Cold War up and going. And then they decided that, you know, they really need a centralized intelligence clearinghouse where, you know, the people in the government could let the president know what the hell is really going on in the world out there, the best they could tell. And instead of getting all kinds of different reports from all kinds of different agencies, they figured, well, they should centralize it so that it's, you know, the president's getting the best advice synthesized by the best men before it comes to him. So he don't have to waste a bunch of time with a bunch of competing stuff and whatever this and that. But then... In the National Security Act of 1947 that created the CIA, it also completely reorganized the military uh, the military departments and everything else, renamed the Department of War the Department of Defense and separated the Air Force away from the Army and created the Chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff and all of these things that came with the National Security Act. One of the things in there, and I'm sorry, I never can remember the exact language, but it's something very close to the CIA— shall also do other things the president (laughs) finds necessary from time to time or something like that, where it's just like, wait, what? They can can do what now? They can do anything.
1: The president can
0: authorize them to break the law. That's called a finding. If the president signs a finding, then they can even torture people to death. Phil, they can do whatever they want. They can break any law. And so that's what really makes the CIA, the CIA is not the gathering of intelligence, but it's using that pretext to create a directorate of operations. Uh, you know, I forgot, I think they renamed it, but same thing. Um, you know, the clandestine service, the covert action branch, where they go out there and quote unquote, collect that intelligence. But that means of course, flipping spies, and running guns, and intervening in civil wars, and launching coup d'etats, and every other thing, whatever you want done. So then, you know, Truman's out, and Eisenhower comes in. Well, and I should say, too, that the whole thing was staffed from the very beginning, as the OSS had been as well, really, by a bunch of skull and bonesmen, a bunch of the very whitest wasps from Yale and from Wall Street, from the Morgan firms, and the Rockefeller firms, and particularly the Rockefeller's lawyers, like the Dulles brothers who came in to run the whole thing. And, you know, it really was what Rockefeller, uh, what uh, Murray Rothbard called the Rockefeller world empire, that these were really the guys, you know, I don't know. I'm almost certain this comes from uh, David Horowitz's book, The Rockefellers, uh, that he wrote with Peter Collier back when he was a communist, where he talks about how, um, After World War II, Standard Oil already had offices all over the world. They had a massive international business network. And the State Department came to them, or maybe they just owned it already all along. They controlled the Council on Foreign Relations, which controlled the policy of the State Department, virtually locked at that time. And they just built the entire State Department on Standard Oil. And the Standard Oil Network became the skeleton of the State Department's international presence. All those new ambassadorships all over the world that came up when America embraced world empire after World War II was all built, you know, through, you know, these conflicted interests. And, you know, the Dulles brothers themselves were the Rockefeller's lawyers. So one went to become the Secretary of State and the other went to run the CIA under Eisenhower. Now, Eisenhower was an army guy, and he didn't like the army pushing him around and demanding that they needed five new divisions here and they needed five new divisions there. And you know what they could really use would be about 10 or 15 new divisions over here. And Eisenhower was like, no way, dude. He was a five-star general. So he's like, you guys aren't going to push me around with this. So uh, he had a new look policy instead that said, what we're going to do is we're going to create 40,000. I don't know if it was that many. We're going to create 10,000 H-bombs. And then that way, we don't need to expand our army. We're going to balance the budget while we fight this Cold War. And we're going to have this massive nuclear deterrent. And we're and already a huge army, but not huger. <clears throat> but we're going to build up this nuclear deterrent. And then we're going to use the CIA to overthrow everybody that we don't like. And we're going to wage this Cold War against the Soviet Union, mostly through... You know, economic means and alliance building, and that meant waging war against. And of course, this is after World War II. So, so many anti-colonial and independence movements against their former European masters were all caught up in leftist politics and Marxism and all kinds of things. So, it was really easy to it was really easy to conflate independence movements with Marxism and. Soviet communism and all of that. And then the idea was all communism in the world is answerable back to the Kremlin, which, of course, wasn't really true, but was the frame in which they they uh, built it up. And so then, you know, they had a free hand. So they did um, a coup in the Congo against Lumumba, which I think it was the Belgians that actually killed him. But the CIA was in on it, you know, all along there. They overthrew Arbenz in Guatemala. They did, um, of course, uh, Mohammed Mossadegh in Iran. And, uh, you know, I'm leaving out a bunch. They went all through the 1950s. They did all these coups. And then, of course, they started escalating in Vietnam and all of these other things. And the CIA was a big part of that, too. And oh, laying the quick. groundwork for American intervention there. And so it essentially it's the president's private army. They're not accountable to the law. It was only in the 1970s that the intelligence committees were created in Congress, but they're nothing really but rubber stamps. And it's thought, and I don't necessarily believe this because I don't think it's really a matter for belief one way or the other. And I'm not invested in the narrative exactly one way or the other either. So I'm not committed on this, but it is widely believed and for credible reasons, although I don't know if it's really definitive or not. That the CIA shot the president in the face in Dallas in 1963. That, And I don't think he truly threatened their independence. People say that he had claimed he was going to smash the CIA into a thousand pieces and all that. I mean, who knows? That's a supposed quote with a single source. You know, I don't know. But I think overall, he wanted to end the Cold War. I was convinced by um, Mike Swanson in the War State book. That, in fact, yeah, the people who say that he wanted to get out of Vietnam and the people who say that he wanted to end the Cold War, that was true. It wasn't just the American University speech. There were things that he was doing that he was really going to try to open up negotiations and create a system of peaceful coexistence to replace the brinksmanship and the containment policy and all that of the Cold War. And I don't know that they did it, but you know what? It's a credible accusation. Because would the CIA have done that? Sure. And you know who quite apparently thought so? Harry Truman, who wrote a letter to the Washington Post, an essay, I guess, an op-ed for the Washington Post about a week later or two weeks later, saying that the CIA should be abolished. And he never meant for it to be its own independent government out there in Langley doing whatever they want the way that they do and all of these things. And then for Harry Truman to write that in the Washington Post, just immediately after the death of the president, where it was suspected that the CIA had done it, it was pretty clear that that's what Harry Truman meant. And so, and he ain't the only one. And then, so, yeah, man, uh, and then it's endless. You look at the cocaine problems and so many social problems that we still have to this day in this country because of the crack epidemic and the drug wars of the 1980s. Um, if you look at, uh, you know, their interventions throughout Latin America on behalf of the, the Contras in Nicaragua and right-wing death squads in El Salvador and all of that, you look at the way quite apparently, I'm ruining my whole book before it comes out, my next one, but it's, this is already reported if you look for it, that this, it's not like I... Journalists did this myself. Um, (laughs) The CIA was telling Kuwait to tell Saddam Hussein to go to hell at the same time that the State Department was telling Saddam Hussein, we don't care if you break their kneecaps. Go ahead. And man, we could just go on and on and on all day, but it's unaccountable power with an unlimited budget. And, you know, I asked Philip Giraldi, I said, hey, when Trump called off CIA support for Al-Qaeda in Syria, were they mad about that or what? And he goes, no, they were so thankful. They hated that job. That was one of their worst jobs. What? We have to back Al-Qaeda in Syria? Even after all of what's happened? Okay, whatever you say, Barack Obama, you're the boss. And so they do the job. (laughs) But, (laughs) You can imagine that probably some of those guys know guys who were killed by Al-Qaeda guys. You know what I mean? Um, You had special ops guys in Jordan training them and getting fragged by them. And special ops guys going, look, I'm sitting here training terrorists for the CIA. And I know that they're going to turn around and shoot me. And then, oh, look out, spoke too soon because there it goes. They turn around and kill him. Yeah, but we thought we could contain them. Yeah, no, not so much. The (laughs) CIA drone wars in Pakistan, all they did was create ISIS and aid and abet a Pakistani government assault against the people of the Swat Valley and the tribal territories there that killed tens of thousands of people, disrupted their whole society, destabilized this Islamic nation that's barely a nation at all, held together by its central state more than anything else that possesses nuclear weapons. A CIA drone war in Yemen did nothing but grow al-Qaeda more and more, and in order to accomplish the policy, the president had to bribe Saleh with the guns that he used to fight the Houthis, which failed and made them more powerful and eventually able to take the capital city, and then eventually ally with him, actually, to take the capital city and create, And then which was the, the cause of the Saudis launching this terrible war back in 2015. That has led to the deaths of so many hundreds of thousands of Yemenis since then. Nobody really knows. So, yeah. And, you know, there's a a book called Legacy of Ashes. There's another one called, what's this? uh, A Failure of Intelligence by Mel Goodman. Um, There's, you know, essentially every book that's even by, like, you know, your Barnes & Noble pretty mainstream authors, you know what I mean? About the CIA They all are just, it's one catastrophe after another. Oh, I left out Team B. You know, under George H.W. Bush, when he was the head of the CIA under Gerald Ford, they created this thing called Team B. Where they went around the honest analysts at the CIA and they just cooked up a bunch of crap about how the Soviet economy is more powerful than ever. And that they have this new kind of submarine that's totally silent. And the reason that you can't hear it out there and the reason that America can't find them anywhere in the oceans out there in the world that actually exists is because... There's so many of them, and they're so secret. And the more you can't hear them, the more of them there are. Of course, they never existed. The whole thing was just made up. And then on and on and on about their missile capabilities, their targeting capabilities, their everything. And this was—you won't be surprised to find out. This group, Team B, included Paul Wolfowitz and Richard Pearl and a bunch of the men who became the Reaganites— uh, you know, the the third tier staffers in the Reagan years and eventually were the war party that led us into Iraq War II under George W. Bush, the very same guys. And then Robert Gates, who you're familiar with because he was George W. Bush's sec- uh, second secretary of defense, who then Obama kept for his first term, uh, most of his first term anyway. Uh, Robert Gates was the deputy director of the CIA under William Casey in the Reagan years. And then after Casey died, he became the director of the CIA. I think someone else was in there for a very short time, and he stayed deputy director, and then he became director. Well, he spent that whole time pretending that the Soviets were more powerful than ever and that America needed to justify all this spending in order to build up the CIA and build up the military and build up our nuclear forces in order to face down the 12-foot-tall Soviet behemoth which at that time was, in fact, disintegrating and completely falling apart. And with, you know, the—I mean, it was essentially all very deliberate or very— a lot of it was very deliberate by their leader, Mikhail Gorbachev, and his foreign minister, Edward Shevardnadze, and others who were working to end the Cold War and then even to abandon Eastern Europe, to allow Eastern Europe to go free and— and break out of the Warsaw Pact and the Soviet alliance. And, and eventually leading to the entire collapse of Soviet communism and the independence of Russia and the rest of the nations um, from the Soviets. And Robert Gates, famously, the CIA, quote unquote, had no idea this was happening. And the reason why is because they were in the middle of lying I mean, they had no idea the USSR was ceasing to exist because they were in the middle of pretending that they were ready to take over the whole world if we didn't stop them. And so they're nothing but trouble, man. We don't need them. Oh, did I mention the people that they tortured to death under George W. Bush and the ones that they buried alive and the ones where they did mock executions? Yep, today's the day, pal. We're taking you out back. Put a bullet in your miserable head, finally, now that we're done torturing you. Now that we got enough lies out of you and then dry fire a gun next to their head, that kind of thing. Or I know, uh, al Libby, who they worked with the Egyptians to torture him into pretending that Saddam had taught Osama how to make chemical weapons and how to hijack planes. They then turned him over to Muammar Gaddafi to murder and call it a suicide in his prison cell there. That's the CIA for you. That was before they betrayed Qaddafi and took al-Qaeda's side against him, you see. Oh, yeah, she and was, then all of the, yeah. the MK Ultra that you mentioned in your question was the, this yeah. project where they did this to, you know, uh, foreign spies and defectors, but also American citizens as well. It wasn't just acid. It was all kinds of insane kind of tortures that they did, trying to come up with mind control assassins and trying to come up with truth serums. And God knows what. And, you know, one example, as we talked about in that interview with Kelly Vlahos, was Ted Kaczynski, the Unabomber terrorist who, you know, I think he killed two or three, but wounded dozens of people with letter bombs and package bombs over the course of like 16 years or something. He was an Ultra subject. And what they'd done was given him a massive dose of acid and then sat there and belittled him and screamed at him and told him that he was scum and that he was subhuman, that his father hated him and that, and all just the worst things that you could think of to say to somebody under the most, you know, intense dose of acid. We're not talking about a tab or two with friends on Friday night, right? We're talking about drink this, you know, and then they just destroyed him. They just destroyed him. And he turned into a monster, of course. And, you know, that's just one, a sensory deprivation to death, electroshock, and, you know, picking on poor black prisoners in the South, you know, got on and on and on, man. I'm telling you, they're just absolutely inhuman levels of cruelty by these guys. And then, you know what, look at how they destroyed Gary Webb. Gary Webb was the reporter who really broke the story into the mainstream news. The alternative news already knew this. But he really broke the story in the mainstream news in the San Jose Mercury News that the CIA had condoned a massive cocaine importation operation into Los Angeles in the 1980s in order to make money to pay for the secret death squads in Nicaragua. And um, what they did to destroy him was a couple of, I guess, you know, black activists from South Central L.A., said, you see, we knew it all along. It was all a government plot to destroy our community. And I think actually maybe his, his editor had even like pulled two different sentences together into one sort of sentence and sort of made it sound like Webb was saying that the purpose of the conspiracy was to bring in this cocaine for the purposes of destroying the black community in South Central LA when that wasn't how he was phrasing it. That wasn't right. The real answer was they didn't give a damn about the poor black people of South Central LA. They didn't care what happened to them at all. If every one of them turned into a crack zombie and died of AIDS, they didn't care at all. Now what's worse, a deliberate plot to destroy them or that level of cruelty against people who supposedly they are sworn to defend. They're sworn to be the people of South LA's security force at all costs. And then not only do they bring in this massive supply of cocaine, they keep it illegal. And not only do they keep it illegal, they ratchet up the penalties for it. They ratchet up the massive local police and federal police, DEA and LAPD crackdowns on the supply, which just drives the price up higher, drives the, the uh, willingness of people to engage in crime in order to maintain their territory higher, uh, means that poor people can't afford to snort it. They can only afford to smoke it, which is that much worse for you and that much more addictive. And has that much worse consequences for families, you know, people, adults, kids, grandparents, communities. And and then but they use the the mistake that like his editor had pull, used a pull quote to sort of make it sound like that part was on purpose. And they use that to destroy Gary Webb. They go, oh, Gary Webb, the crazy conspiracy theorist who says that the CIA deliberately destroyed the black community with cocaine. And he goes, that's not what I said. I said they deliberately brought the cocaine in. And apparently they didn't give a damn what happened to the victims of the economics of this entire process, you know, but that was enough for them to ruin his life. And, you know, people think that the CIA must've murdered him, but it really was a suicide. And people who knew him knew it was a suicide. Um, he had sold his house. he you know, left all his money and all of his uh, transferred ownership of all of his possessions over to his wife. I think someone had stolen his motorcycle was like the final straw. Shot himself with his father's gun, a small pistol, and people said no because there were two shots. But actually, that does happen sometimes where you know what you shoot yourself in the mouth. It's pretty easy to flinch, and on the first shot, it went out of the side of his mouth. Essentially, was not fatal. And the second one was fatal. And a bunch of kooks latched onto that to say that the CIA murdered him. But they didn't need to murder him. You know, he wasn't working at the time. He had been transferred to the Hollywood rumor and gossip beat at the San Jose Mercury News before they had fired him completely. He wasn't a threat to anyone. So the CIA, they did kill him, but it was his hand. But they were the ones holding it. They deliberately and not only, you know, did they destroy him, but they recruited all of their assets at the Washington Post and the Los Angeles Times to go full bore after this man, this heroic reporter who told the truth. And they destroyed him and pretended that he was wrong, pretended that his story didn't hold up. Yeah, right. Once you read the book, you tell me. And, uh. And they completely destroyed him. And later on, they admitted it. Later on, the guys at the L.A. Times were like, yeah, geez, I don't know why we did that. (laughs) Yeah, we know why. Because you're CIA assets. You're not really reporters at all. You're agents of the man. How could they possibly? How could any reporter possibly take the side of the CIA against Gary Webb? Answer, they're CIA. Yeah, it's funny how their own actions are their best just say no campaign. Oh, I'm telling you, man. I mean, they're doing, you know what? Can, remember counterinsurgency war, warfare in Iraq? God damn it, I can't talk anymore. Counterinsurgency warfare in Iraq? Let's just do sweeps and arrest every fighting age male Sunni in this neighborhood and that neighborhood? That's the way they did the poor blacks of L.A. Oh, you guys have a abundance of cocaine problem. And a black market problem and a Crips and Bloods war over control of the territory, huh? Well, that's fine. We'll just send the LAPD in there like soldiers to kill people, to round them up, to toss them in cages for decades for simple possession charges. I forgot whose drug war documentary it was where they show some old clip from the 80s. And it's a bunch of black guys behind some bars at the penitentiary, a California penitentiary. And they're all kind of hollering at the camera, trying to get a chance to say one thing. And this one guy, like his voice kind of breaks out against the rest. And he goes, look at me, look at me. I'm doing 35 years for some crack rocks in my pocket. Does that sound fair to you? And then the answer is, Psh, you don't count. You're not a human at all. We don't know your name. We don't need to know it. You probably won't live the 35 years to ever see daylight again. But, hey, those are the breaks. Ronald Reagan's got a war to win down there in Nicaragua, you know. And so these people are just collateral damage, right? They, they're like, you know, all the tax money that you paid in your life being just wasted on the remainder of the change on some percent on something they didn't even use, you know. That's the lives of these poor black people in the ghetto in L.A. Was, you know, you're to be made an example of your life is not to be considered. You know, you're like a, you're a prop in somebody else's story. Now was the way they did it, man. Is ruthless Cruelty. And, you know, that whole the Crips bloods thing then spread out of L.A. to all across the country. I mean, there was the the crack problem was not just in L.A. They're bringing into Bill Clinton's Arkansas and spreading it throughout the whole south. And then, of course, it's coming into Florida and driving up to New York and all of that. They had live in base heads and all their own problems on the East Coast. And then you had, you know, that kind of gang violence over control over the territory spread to everywhere, Kansas City and. And Boise and whatever you got, man Wherever's got a poor black part of town You know And uh, it's been like that And all that's because of the CIA You know They couldn't have just And they did get the Saudis To just cut checks to the Contras They did say to the Saudis Can you cut some checks for the Contras But it just wasn't enough (laughs) You know They should have asked for some more but yeah, but anyway, so back to the real point there, though, is which is worse, that they deliberately sabotaged this society this way or that they just didn't give a damn at all. You know, same difference, especially if you're on the receiving end, especially if you saw your community torn apart, and your own kids killed in the thing. You know, but you know what? Nobody in South Central L.A. had any relatives at CIA, (laughs) who could say like, hey, those are my people whose lives we're destroying, man. So they're the voiceless in that one. All right. Next question, or we're already over an hour. Was there more stuff? If you want
1: to talk about the Ron Paul book real quick, wrap it up on a happy note, maybe.
0: Yeah, man. So finally, it's the future, not the past, and I'm no longer working on it. I'm done. It's the book, The Great Ron Paul the Scott Horton show interviews 2004 through 19. And, um, it's the transcripts of 38 interviews of Dr. Paul. Plus when he and Dan interviewed me on their show, the Liberty report about fool's Aaron, when it came out and a speech I gave last November at, uh, Lake Jackson, Texas at a Ron Paul event there. That was most of the speech was about the greatness of Ron. And, um, so I hope everybody likes it. I know I'm really proud of it. I know that he comes across really great. I come across as, you know, teacher's pet, suck up, embarrassment. But I don't care because, you know what? Like, honestly, I really do believe he's the greatest hero in American history. And if I didn't take every opportunity that I truly had in my life to make sure that he knew that, then I would later really regret it. So... uh so I don't care. I am a little embarrassed, but not really. Um, and But yeah, other than that, it's perfect. Other than that, it's Ron Paul being right about everything for 15 years straight. It's just great. And uh, I know everybody's really going to love it. It's the great Ron Paul. It's at libertarianinstitute.org and on amazon.com, paperback, or Kindle. And uh, a great gift for the Ron Paulian in your life, possibly.
1: Coming this Christmas.
0: Yeah. I mean, birthday's coming up, too, you know, Halloween, Thanksgiving. <laughs> I don't
1: anyway. uh, Um And listen,
0: rumble. Sheldon's book should be done soon.
1: Oh, new title on that is
0: Coming to Palestine. We had to change there it because it turns out there's already a book called Why Palestine Matters.
1: I like that one better, though. It's classy.
0: Yeah. Oh, the Coming to Palestine. Yeah. Yeah. No, it is good, isn't it? It's so kind of a double tradition. meaning, too, right? Like.
1: Yeah, you can get, like, a right-winger's attention with that, so they can get red-pilled secretly.
0: Yeah. And you know what? It's just great. It is so good. And I just, yeah, there, there ain't much debate to be had, and I'm really proud that it's the Libertarian Institute that gets to put this out, and I think that we all should consider ourselves lucky that the libertarian take on Palestine was written by the great Sheldon Richmond, who gets nothing wrong and everything right. And it's just so damn good. And I know people are going to love it. And I know it's going to change minds. This is going to be one where people give it to their dad and they're like, look, man, you think you know about some things? Read this and then get back to me.
1: 30 years. You can't argue against 30 years of research.
0: Yeah, man. Yeah, you know what? You can't argue with Sheldon Richmond about a damn thing. That's what you can't do. Um, and you know what? There are a lot of pro-Palestinians, but whose understanding of events are tainted by conservatism and liberalism, or worse. Um, but not Sheldon. He's a libertarian, so he asks all of the right questions from the right point of view, and uh, and completely nails it. So uh, I'm more proud of Sheldon's book than I am of my own here. But it's, either way, man, we got three now. Fool's errand. No quarter, the ravings of William Norman Grigg, the great Ron Paul, and coming very soon. I guess it ain't going to be till this weekend or next Monday or something. Wait, it's, tomorrow's Thursday, right? It's possible yes. we could get it out tomorrow night, but I think not. And then Friday, I'm going to be completely swamped. So it might be, might be early next week, but early next week at the latest, we will have the new uh, Sheldon Richmond book out for you. Love it. Go buy it, people. All right, cool. Well, I'll let you go, man, because I'm going to go eat food. Yeah, I'm
1: exhausted. Thanks for having me. It was a good talk.
0: Yeah, man. Thanks, Phil. All right, you guys. That's the Q&A show for, uh, what, the 18th of September 2019, scotthorton.org slash show. And then, you know, the real show is the interviews, scotthorton.org slash interviews, or just check out the front page there, 5,000 of them for you going back to 2003. And yeah, check out the books, Fool's Errand and The Great Ron Paul all available at libertarianinstitute.org and at amazon.com.